AI is everywhere. There is a lot of hype around AI, but what's the impact of artificial intelligence, machine learning, autonomous technologies on the economy, on jobs, on organizations? These are key questions. And today on episode number 268 of CXO Talk, we have truly one of the world leaders, one of the world's leading researchers who is here to talk with us about these topics. I'm Michael Krigsman. I'm an industry analyst and the host of CXO Talk. I want to say a quick thank you to Livestream for supporting, for providing our video streaming infrastructure. Livestream has been supporting us since the beginning and those guys are great. And if you go to livestream.com slash CXO Talk, they will even give you a discount on their plan. So thank you to Livestream. Without further ado, I want to introduce Michael Chewy, who is one of the leaders of McKinsey Global Institute, which is the research arm of McKinsey. And, and Michael, I don't know if that's a correct or an incorrect introduction to, to McKinsey Global Institute, but welcome, to, welcome back to CXO Talk. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for having me on. And that was a perfect uh, description of MGI. So tell us about MGI, McKinsey Global Institute. What, is it, what does it do and uh, what kind of research are you engaged in? Well, as your watchers know, uh, uh, McKinsey Company is a global management uh, consulting firm. The McKinsey Global Institute is part of McKinsey. It's an investment by um, our uh, group of global partners around the world to do research, quite frankly, on topics that matter. We've been around for over 25 years as part of McKinsey. For most of the, that time, have done work on productivity, country competitiveness, uh, labor markets, capital markets. But the past um, you know, few years, we've added another research leg, which is around the impact of long-term technology trends. We've looked at data and analytics. We've looked at open data. We've looked at Internet of Things. And increasingly now, we're looking at artificial intelligence, robotics, and automation technologies and their potential impact on business, um, uh, you know, society and jobs and employment more generally. When you focus on artificial intelligence, robotics, these kinds of technologies, do you have a particular perspective or a lens through which you, you look at these topics? We have multiple lenses. Uh, now, first, uh, we understand we need to understand the, the technology itself. And so, um, you know, it, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, the, the term artificial intelligence is not new. It was uh, coined you know, almost, uh, I think, over half a century ago. So it's been around for a while. And so understanding the underlying technology. Uh, but then it really, it's, it's, it's not just the technology that we're interested in. We, we want to know what this means for business, uh, what this means for jobs, what this means for employment, what this means for economies. And so we really try to take that lens on it. So what's the impact of that, those technologies uh, that, that underpin, um, you know, some of these trends? So it's the business impact of these technologies. Now, is there a common uh, definition that you use just as a, as a baseline? Maybe you can help, help define this for us. You know, defining artificial intelligence is, um, uh, you, you could go for hours debating it. I mean, roughly speaking, we would describe it as using machines to do cognitive work, to do the work that, that, that comes about primarily because of our brains. Um, but as it turns out, you know, even for my, uh, you know, my graduate research studies, we know that all, not all of our intelligence is just trapped in our brains. It's also part of our bodies, et cetera. And so we understand that in many cases, artificial intelligence itself might, you know, enter the physical world, be things like robotics and, and autonomous vehicles, et cetera. But it roughly has to do with, you know, intelligence and then the machines that instantiate it. 
I don't want to spend too much time on the definitions. However, when you talk about machines doing cognitive work, you're sort of leaving wide open a big question that I just have to ask you to elaborate on. What's the what's the question that that I'm that we're leaving wide open? Well, what does that what does that actually mean to do cognitive? Because machines are not thinking, right? They're going through many penny patterns, pattern, 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 and matching. So it's not really thinking, but yet we use that term cognitive. I, I think it's completely fair, and and uh, like I said, we can continue to we you know we we can talk for hours and hours about whether or not this is that or that that is this. I mean, roughly speaking, if um, you know if you think it just in economic terms, and you think about the work that we all do, um, there's work that we think of as as you know involving intelligence. Um, now there are all kinds of different types of intelligence too. Uh, so in some cases we think about logical problem solving, as you said, uh, pattern matching, recognizing patterns, but also developing new patterns. Uh, but you know, as, as we think about what it takes to be an effective worker in a lot of places, whether you're a salesperson, whether you're a customer support representative, whether you're a manager or an executive, you know, part of that is understanding human emotion as well, being able to process that and, and then respond appropriately. And so we all think that those are aspects of intelligence, in addition to the ability to potentially you know, pick up something which has irregular shapes, uh, irregular objects, uh, and then maybe have a certain amount of squishiness. You know, you, you don't think about that as being something that you use your brain to do. But, uh, you know, what we found is in robotics, that those are some of the hardest things to do. And so that often gets incorporated into this definition of artificial intelligence. Some people separate out the physical from the, from the pure uh, cognitive. But uh, in many cases, those things can't be separated. And, and finally, on this, this definitional point, what, is, is there a meaningful impact in the fact that you define AI in this particular way? How does that, how does that address or shape or inform or circumscribe uh, your research? We take a pretty broad definition of, of what we mean by AI. And quite frankly, sometimes we use other words, you know, such as automation, you know, to capture the fact that some of these things don't seem to involve a lot of what you would call higher level of, of intelligence. You know, I think as we think about it, you know, the, the, you know, the, the sharp cuts between whether it's AI or not, um, you know, not are less important than what the impact might be. And, you know, if you don't mind, I, I think there are a bunch of other words, you know, people have talked about cognitive computing, which, you know, is perhaps just another brand name for AI. There are some additional distinctions. So particularly recently, um, you know, when I started in AI, a lot of the AI that was developed was, um, you know, purely algorithmic in a certain sense, you know, being able to program an if-then type, you know, in large amounts of if-then type statements. Machine learning is, you know, is, you know, quite uh, au courant now. And, that, you know, roughly the difference being between traditional computing and machine learning is now you're training a system rather than programming it. So the important thing is, you know, what are the training sets? What are the ways in which you, you know, maybe reward or punish is another way to think about uh, machine learning. And then deep learning particularly is a, another you know, where a lot of the uh, recent advances have been. And so to a certain extent, you know, that that's, you know, it, it oftentimes synonymous. It is really a subset, deep learning and machine learning are subsets of overall artificial intelligence. That's where a, a lot of the, as, as I said, the recent uh, revolutionary or at least striking developments have been and where a lot of energy is going into on the technical side. So your your focus is, uh, of course, that the understanding the technology is kind of a, a basis or a foundation, but your focus is on the business implications of this, looking at industries and looking at companies. And so maybe you, can you can you share with us some of the broad, high level conclusions of what your research has uncovered? 
Yeah, well, a few things. One is our research is ongoing. Uh, this is a topic I don't think that you know, we will uh, publish one report and we'll be done. Um, but just just to, to to preface, we can keep diving into to different details. First of all, as we start started to try to understand what the overall potential for these technologies might be that we roughly call artificial intelligence, they are huge. Um, they affect potentially every sector, potentially every function. And one reason for that is uh, a lot of the potential applications of AI uh, really are extensions of the work that people had already started in data and in analytics. And so we've been looking at you know, nearly 500 different use cases of, of uh, artificial intelligence across every sector, across every function. And sometimes what we say is you know, these traditional analytic methods, whether it's um, you know, regression or what have you, you know, get you this much impact. But when you can add the multidimensionality of additional data of, a, of these additional deep learning techniques, you can increase, for instance, forecast accuracy or um, you know, increase uh, you know, OEE or, or decrease waste. A number of these things which uh, these use cases allow us to do. Uh, you could think of AI as just being another, um, you know, turbocharged tool for your analytical toolkit. So I think that's one, you know, one broad finding, which is that there is almost no part of the business uh, that this couldn't affect. Another piece, though, is, you know, we've been doing, uh, you know, surveying thousands of different executives in, in companies uh, all around the world. Um, you know, my, my colleagues who serve clients on, on these topics also have you know, very direct uh, contact with people who are thinking about or using AI. And, and one of the things that we know now as we sit, you know, December 2017, as we're talking, um, is that it's very early. So while there's this huge potential for improving economics, both in the top line and bottom line, that a very small percentage of companies have actually either deployed AI at scale or within core business processes. Now that's changing every day as more and more uh, companies develop this capability learn more about the technology, and then also be able to, to embed it within, uh, you know, within the processes of an organization, which in some cases is the hardest thing to do. But at least as we sit now, we're just very early on this learning curve. Uh, it's a steep learning curve, but we're early. And so, you know, I think those are two things which, you know, they're a little bit intention, so much potential, but we're early. I want to remind everybody that we're speaking with Michael Chewy, who is one of the leaders of McKinsey Global Institute. And right now, there is a tweet chat going on on Twitter using the hashtag CXOTalk. And you can ask Michael questions and please share your comments and your thoughts. So, Michael, you were, so we're at this phase where it's clear that there's all of this potential across uh, many, many different, almost every sector of uh, industry, as you described, and yet very few companies have deployed artificial intelligence technologies at scale. That means that at this stage, there is also a large understanding gap and execution gap. And so, how do how do how do organizations fill those gaps? How do they, how do they how, what steps do they need to take? Well, I think in terms of steps that need to be taken, it, it's not um, it's not the first time when we've seen a new 
uh, family of technologies uh, enter the scene, which has great potential and where it's fairly early. If you think back to cloud, if you think back to mobile, um, these are, are uh, you know, technologies which are transformative, but take time to actually embed into a business. So first of all, you know, as we were talking about, there's, you need to have an understanding of the technology itself. You need to raise the waterline. Um, that can often start with a technologist. Um, but you need, you know, we've said this so many times when we've talked about any technology. It's not just the technologists who have to understand something about it because, it, you know, you, you really do need business leaders writ large to start to um, understand what's possible. If you don't understand the art of the possible, you're not going to be able to identify and prioritize opportunities. So I think that understanding the technology is number one. Secondly, uh, you know, again, because we're at this early stage where the potential is increasingly being recognized, we're starting to see more and more vendors uh, show up at, at, at our doors, you know, you know, carrying AI solutions in their bag. And that's great. That's, I think that's part of that, you know, taking those meetings is part of that education. Um, but I think an often uh, a failing would be, you know, to be, to be uh, captured, uh, to, to find something so exciting that you just want to go ahead and do it. And I think making sure that, again, not that you need to take years to do this, but very quickly understand the, the portfolio of possibilities so that you're actually spending your time on the types of uh, solutions which will drive the needle uh, for your business. And so, for instance, we've looked at, you know, I, I talked about, you know, 500 you know, or so use cases that we've looked at, you know, two, just two broad categories where we've seen huge amounts of potential. You know, one is basically on the customer facing, you know, sales, marketing, you know, customer experience side. And so this is everything from, you know, improving your next product to buy recommendation uh, to being able to segment a, a customer who comes to you so that you that you provide them with much more personalized and customized uh, interactions. And then another broad category, which let's just describe it as operations improvement. And so whether or not it's identifying waste, reducing inventory costs, um, you know, um, managing your, your energy costs, logistics, supply chain, et cetera. That's another broad, broad category. And so again, if you, if you, if you understand what type of business you're in, you'll understand which of these needs if you tuned it up by 10, 15, 50%, which one will actually drive the most value for you? And I think understanding that. And then, of course, um, you know, the, the execution against it is so, so important. Because again, that last mile, right? I mean, there's a, there, we see this pilotization, you know, pilotitis maybe, right? It, it's great to run a pilot. It seems to be successful. But the real hard work then is, you know, how do you day-to-day -day change that process, which is really going to drive um, uh, benefit at scale. You know, that's the hard work we do on change management every day, but this is a different set of underlying technologies, and we'll need to learn how to do that in every business. You're, what you say is so packed. There are about 12 different things I'd like to ask you simultaneously, and I wish we had about three hours. Uh, but we have to, but to, but we have to focus because there, we have so little limited time. We have half an hour left, and the time is just flying by. So, what are the common threads as you look at industries? What are the common threads? And at the same time, we have a question from Twitter, and maybe you can weave uh, weave this in. Scott Weitzman from IPsoft is asking, "How does a company understand technologies?" from a purchasing perspective, in other words, okay, uh, how, do, how do companies think about buying this? So the, so the industries and absorption are the, the topics here I would ask you to elaborate on a bit. 
Well, let's start with industries, as you said. You know, again, if you if you take these two broad categories of of value potential, um, there are a lot of industries which. Uh, you know, much of their value gets driven from their cons- cons- uh, cu- customer interactions. So, if you're a retail company, if you're a uh, uh, if you're a consumer packaged company, uh, et cetera, you you it might make more sense that to to look at the value of AI um, and those types of functions. On the other hand, if you're driven by your operational effectiveness, if you're in the you know the business of manufacturing, uh, delivering and shipping uh, products, for instance, if you're in logistics, um, then perhaps you know those operational needs. Uh, so again, uh, you know I, I think those are you know at, at least at the top level um, one way to think about it. Uh, but I think another common thread that we have found is is the following, which is I think oftentimes you you discover a technology which has potentially transformative impact. And you say, gosh, could, isn't there a shortcut? Can't I just jump and use that to compete? And as it turns out, what we've discovered with AI, particularly because of the need for um, you know, large training sets uh, of data, that in fact, uh, we have a high, we've discovered a high correlation between both sectors as well as individual companies, which are further along in their digitization journey. So the ability to use digital within their core processes to improve process, uh, process effectiveness. And, um, there's a high correlation between that and your readiness for AI. And so I, I think, you know, one of the other common threads we've discovered is it's actually quite difficult to uh, accelerate past your digitization journey. You need to be on the digital journey in order to enable yourself to be ready for AI. I think that's um, you know another finding. So you know if you want to accelerate your potential impact with AI, you need to accelerate your um, you know your your move along the digital journey. Uh, to, to the to the questioner's um, uh, question in terms of how do you think or how are customers thinking about uh, purchasing. Um, I, I think a couple of things. I mean, one is uh, because it's early, um, you know, developing and understanding from the customer perspective is more important than ever. And so, again, I, I'm assuming the question is coming from a, a place of, yeah, as a technology vendor, how do you, how do you um, sell more effectively? The first thing is sometimes what you need to do is to educate the customer. So, in fact, they can be a good customer, understand the value that you're potentially providing. But the other piece of it is, you know, as we think about the impact of AI, certainly there are impacts of AI which are improving the, you know, improving the IT function itself, right? So whether or not it's using AI to improve cybersecurity, using AI to improve, um, you know, uh, um, you know, customer support for IT. But most of the, look, the vast majority of the value of AI is coming from improving business metrics. And so then what I'd say is then it's going to be a simultaneous sale. You, from a procurement standpoint, you need to make that case to the business. You also need to make that case um, you know, to the technology function as well simultaneously. And so I think that's something else that we'll see more and more of, which is that the business will need to understand this in order to buy AI. When you say that the uh, vast majority of the business benefit of AI comes from metrics, I'm assuming that what you mean is uh, businesses need to see the practical results or, or, or are you getting at something else? Yeah, I, I think business needs to see the practical result. And when I mean practical result, I, you know, we're talking about things like increased conversion. We're talking about, uh, you know, things like, um, you know, decreased maintenance costs, uh, increased uptime. Um, you know, you know, higher pri- higher priority prospects or higher potential prospects uh, being identified. So, 
you know, literally the things that drive the business, the metrics that drive the business are the ones that people are going to be looking toward AI solutions providing. We have a question from Twitter from Mitch Lieberman about a topic that I know is very important to you, and that is the issue of AI and the economic impact and the impact on jobs and the workforce. So this is a topic that we recently published. Uh, actually, we published two reports. We published one in January, and we just published one at the, uh, at the end of last month, the last one entitled uh, Jobs Lost, Jobs Gained. So a couple of things. One is uh, AI and these automation technologies more broadly. Um, again, a, a lar some of the potential impact is for these technologies to automate activities, which we current pe currently pay people to do in the economy. In fact, our estimate is... Um, Again, we looked at things at the, at the level of individual activities, not just occupations. So 2,000 different activities we pay people to do in the global economy. Roughly half of the time that people spend being paid at work are on activities which theoretically could be automated by adapting technologies which exist today. So that sounds scary, right? I mean, that's, that's a large percentage. Uh, but we're not predicting 50% unemployment tomorrow. Uh, partly because it takes real time. It takes real time on the technology side to develop the technology. You actually have to have a positive business case. Typically, when technologies are first developed, whether it's a self-driving car or an artificial intelligence algorithm, it tends to be relatively expensive. The cost declines thanks to Moore's Law. Of, um, you, you need to net that out against the cost of human labor, and that's different around the world. In any case, you know, 50% of the world's activities potentially might not be automated for another 40 years, right? So, 2055, although, you know, we have a scenario which is 20 years earlier and a scenario that's 20 years later. But we do know that increasingly activities which we pay people to do will be automated. The question then is, will there be enough demand for human labor, even net of the things that might be automated? And our report from last month suggests yes. If you look at a number of different potential catalysts, whether it's increasing prosperity around the world, another billion people entering the consuming class in the next couple of decades, whether you talk about aging, which is a you know troubling thing because we have less workers, but on the other hand, drives the need for healthcare. We have you know roles for people to develop and deploy the technologies themselves. Um, we're gonna see increasing, hopefully, in uh, investment in infrastructure, um, you know, to help, you know, the, the consuming class, but also fix and improve the infrastructure we have. Uh, we'll see changes in energy mix and efficiency, and potentially even a lot of what's currently unpaid work in the economy, you know, that many times done by women at home, whether it's childcare, cooking and cleaning, increasingly enter the market. So if you, if you look at all of those things together, and then even you net against those, the activities which AI and robotics might do, we still see plenty of work for people to do, uh, enough to basically offset the effects of, of automation. The broad question, though, is, okay, if you, if you think mass unemployment isn't going to be the problem, mass redeployment might actually be the problem. Because as much as we want the education system to get better, it actually works fairly well. What we what we think is potentially the great grand challenge for the next couple of decades is how do we retrain millions of workers who will be displaced by the technology that we need them to keep working to have economic growth and yet at scale retraining of people past their first two decades of life is something that I dare say is we, we haven't completely solved yet. And so that's something we really badly need to work on. So clearly there is a very broad set of stakeholders that needs to be involved in thinking through these issues. That's absolutely right. Uh, the, the, the breadth of this includes everyone from 
uh, you know, government and policymakers, business leaders, and then individuals themselves. I, I think there's, there's um, you know, people have said, look, what's the one thing we need to do? And, uh, you know, given the breadth of this problem, I do think it's potentially an all of the above. You know, we need to think about what are the public policy levers, what are the business levers. And I'm encouraged greatly by, you know, a, a number of business leaders. You know, you think about these these heartless capitalists, but, you know, they, they understand that Henry Ford thing about, you know, if you don't pay workers enough, they can't buy your products, right? And so, you know, we do hear about business leaders saying, how do we retrain our workforce? In fact, how do we even retrain our workforce if sometimes their next job won't be with us, right? But we know that we need to, to have a, a compelling employee value proposition. And then a lot of people have said, you know, how, how do we enable workers to take charge of their own careers, take charge of their own training, give them the tools and the information they need so they can retrain because this will affect all of us. It doesn't just affect a sliver of people who are low wage frontline. Uh, we find activities even for people with graduate degrees, you know, 20, 30% of what they might do might you know, potentially be done by machines. And so they'll have to think about what they do differently as well. To what extent do business leaders need to think about these retraining issues now at this very early stage where they're just beginning AI pilots and very narrow processes? Yeah, I do think that this is something that that uh, demands some immediate attention. Now, it's not necessarily because, uh, you know, things are going to happen overnight, particularly with regard to AI. But if we think about automation technologies more broadly, then, in fact, we are starting to see these things, whether it's robotic process automation, whether it's physical automation in, um, you know, from a manufacturing plant or in logistics or a distribution center. These technologies are coming into play today. And again, another point that we sometimes make is, you know, while we've described this as being a multi-decades trend, that this will take time in macro it will happen quickly for individuals. It will happen quickly for individual workers. And so I, I do think, and by the way, it takes time also to understand retraining. Uh, we describe this as a grand challenge. Usually grand challenges aren't solved overnight. And so I do think business leaders engaging on this question about retraining their workforce on a continuous basis at scale uh, is something that is a, a question that ought to be um, you know, top of their mind when they're starting to think about their workforce strategy. And what is the what is the difference between retraining now and retraining following the wave of outsourcing that took place? Uh, you know, some time ago. Yeah, I mean, we, when we look to history, in some ways there there are encouraging uh, pieces there. Whether it's outsourcing, whether it's you know the the broad based move from agriculture to manufacturing, the increasing move from manufacturing services. You know, in flexible marketplaces, we found people do find new jobs. Now, there is a separate question about whether or not, you know, they're being paid as, as much as, as we would like them to be in order for them to, to continue to, to consume and be part of the economy. But, you know, broadly speaking, we've been able to do that. Are there differences now? A couple of things. I mean, one is the breadth of potential impact here. Like I said before, this is not just, you know, some assembly line manufacturing workers. This is not just... Um, you know, one role or another. In fact, all of us, you know, will have this impact our lives. And so I think, you know, being able to do that, the scale also, uh, particularly, again, past the first two decades of life, um, mid-career retraining is, is uh, we've found to be a challenge as we've looked at different programs. There are successes out there, but again, we need to build on those successes, be able to see what we can do at scale. And just the level of investment, um, you know, I, I, I had the privilege of, of talking with a workforce uh, development board recently of a, of a you know, large city in the United States. And, you know, we just sat back and compared the amount of investment being made in K through 12 
or you know, K through college even, and compare that to the level of investment that we're making in you know, people who have left formal, formal schooling. Uh, and again, it's just a, it's a huge, vast difference. Now that said, you know, this has been a story that's continued. Again, when we, when we started this process of moving from farm to factory in the United States, there was no universal high school. That was a social movement. That was a set of investments that we as a society decided to make. And so I think our question now, as we think about artificial intelligence, as we think about the impact that might have on the workforce, the fact that we'll need to retrain so many people you know, what are the analogous but different sets of investments that need to be made so that we can take advantage of the benefits of artificial intelligence and yet continue to have both dignity as well as incomes that comes with work? Because we, we don't believe, in fact, if that, you know, if, if the machines do all the work and people aren't working at all, we won't have enough economic growth in addition to the, the, the be other benefits that work gives you. I want to ask you about uh, demographic issues. But before that, we have a, a comment question from Twitter from John Nasta, who's, uh, who's been a guest on this show and is a brilliant thinker about the future of healthcare and these kinds of the impact of these technologies. And John asks, what about the potential for a guaranteed minimum income that changes the entire notion of what is a typical full-time job? So this idea of a uh, universal basic income, guaranteed minimum income, et cetera, you know, is very, um, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's capturing a lot of uh, currency. I, I sit in San Francisco here, and, and as it turns out, there are a lot of people talking about it there, and there are lots of arguments for it. Um, one of those arguments is, you know, if we think the machines are going to take everybody's job and we're going to have mass unemployment, we need to make sure that everybody has enough uh, you know, income so that they, in fact, can, can uh, you know, feed themselves, et cetera, and feed them, their families. Uh, I think that justification or that rationale for universal basic income uh, gives up too early because that assumes mass unemployment. And in fact, what we say is we do need mass redeployment, not mass unemployment, just to make sure that we have enough uh, economic growth going forward, right? Our point of view is that, in, you know, we've looked at the past 50 years of economic growth. Half of that has come about because of more people working. Um, because of aging, we're, we're going to lose a lot of that. So one way to think about it is we just don't have enough workers. So we need all the AIs, robots, robots, et cetera, working. Plus, we need people working to have economic growth. And so, again, if you think UBI is, is based on the fact that you, we're going to have mass, mass unemployment I think you've given up already, and in fact, you, you need to move. The other thing that I think is also helpful, um, you know, again, as we modeled out the potential impact of uh, AI and other technologies, plus these additional drivers, we might continue to see this increasing income dispersion or uh, income inequality. And so you, you might ask, look, we, we just need to make sure that people get paid enough. Well, then, you know, again, if you want to look at it from a public policy standpoint, maybe you could target the types of subsidies, such as the earned income tax credit, which both incent work as, also, as well as provide uh, additional income to people. So I think thinking through all of those possibilities. Now that said, UBI for a place that's a developing country, you know, again, they might put the floor in a place that allows people to, to have a lot more freedom in terms of what they're able to do in their job. Uh, but in a developed country, both because of the expense as well as the fact that it isn't targeted towards trying to get people working, I think that it's, it's challenging for that reason. Um, that said, um, you know, the overall point, another overall point that we found from history, which we hope will continue, is while we don't think everyone can completely stop working, uh, the working week has declined on average 
um, you know, by double-digit percentages um, over the um, a matter of decades and centuries. And so, you know, hopefully we all can actually have more time for leisure. By the way, leisure actually drives new activities, new occupations. That's something else we need to do. We need to continue to generate new activities and occupations. Um, and so, you know, hopefully the work, will, work week will continue to decrease over time, but at least for the foreseeable future, we don't see it going to zero. We have uh, questions uh, backing up on Twitter from uh, Stephen Norton from the Wall Street Journal has a question that I want to get to in a moment. The CXO Talk uh, social media account has a question that I want to get to. But what about uh, the issue of demographics? Where does that come into play? Yeah, demographics is is a really interesting and a number of powerful um, uh, factors. And again, we cover some of this in the the report we published last month. Uh, First of all, you know, countries vary greatly in their demographics, but for many countries, uh, they're aging. And that that basically exacerbates this question of we don't have enough workers to continue the economic growth that we've enjoyed for so many years. The reason why, you know, we have better lives than our parents and our parents have better lives than our grandparents, et cetera, is because of this economic growth and half of it coming from more people working. Well, Germany's, you know, workforce is declining. Japan's workforce is declining. China with a population of a billion and a half people uh, their workforce either is or, you know, depending on whom you ask, you know, will shortly begin declining. Those are countries which simply don't have enough workers uh, to underpin economic growth. And so, again, one of the implications of that is AI and robotics can actually be some of the workers, uh, can fill in for that gap in terms of just numbers of people who are available to, to work. That said, there are other countries like India, countries on the African continent, et cetera, where, which are very young, and their demographic period look, pyramid looks very different. And so we were concerned at some point about the fact, well, gosh, what if, what if automation, AI, these technologies come into play just as they need to create even more jobs? And that's absolutely true in India, for instance, you know, another 150 million people um, needing jobs going forward. Again, as we modeled out all of these potential drivers of additional demand, by the way, we picked seven of them. We know that there are more. So you know, even our modeling is limited. Uh, particularly in those countries which tend to be young. Those are countries also which uh, tend to have high aspirations for their economic growth. They start you know, relatively low on their GDP per capita scale. As a result, that will generate lots of demand for human labor as well as robotics and artificial intelligence. And so even in those countries, we see the potential for lots of work as well, the work to be done. And again, that comes back to the question of retraining and education. Can we get people into those jobs? And then can you actually deploy those technologies in a way? Because as I said before, AI and robotics you know, require an underpinning of moving on the digital journey. And so even those countries which are developing and young will need to move on the digital journey in order for them to take advantage of these other technologies and improve their productivity while they're generating new jobs for people as well. We have uh, several questions from Twitter, and I'll ask you to answer these relatively quickly because I'd love to get to as many, many as we can. And wow, my mind is just being blown by the things that you're saying, Michael. Uh, and I want to remind everybody, we're talking with the amazing Michael Chu, who is one of the leaders of McKinsey's Global Institute. And his research into AI, the impact of AI on jobs, the economy, is, is really pretty extraordinary. 
So we have a question from Stephen Norton on Twitter, and Stephen Norton is a reporter for the Wall Street Journal. And by the way, I, I want to always encourage reporters to ask questions. We have such amazing guests on CXO Talk. There are a lot of stories here to write. Stephen Norton asks, what role does user experience play in adoption of AI in the enterprise? Is user experience today sophisticated enough to be useful to help employees outside the data science and IT departments. Hey, Stephen, thanks for the question. I love your stuff, by the way. A couple of things. One is I, I think we are starting to see really interesting things in AI, particularly in voice, et cetera, where uh, you know, it's a lot better than it used to be. At the same time, is it perfect? Not even close. Um, so you know, there, there's that very visible frontline use of AI for user experience. There's also that the, the effective use of uh, AI and these technologies a bit in the background. So making sure that, in fact, you're getting a, a personalized type of response um, uh, you know, and, and so I think in some cases that's getting a lot better. And in fact, you can't even see that it's working. Uh, and so I think there's a, there's a, you know, a little, little bit of a distinction there, but in both cases, I think AI continues to improve the potential of improving customer experience. Uh, some of it is, is sometimes laughable, uh, but we do see great in improvements in that uh, over time. Another question from Twitter from, this is, this is like, uh, become like 20 questions here. Uh, Mitch Lieberman asks, you've mentioned uh, hundreds of use cases. Where does medical fit in? And in general, what, where, which use cases have the greatest impact? Yeah, so, uh, you know, the healthcare uh, uh, use cases are, um, you know, ex extremely powerful. Um, lots of uh, lots of value potential there. In fact, you know, uh, I'm sure the questioner has seen, but, you know, lots of interesting uh, academic results being published, um, you know, day by day. We see, um, you know, a, a recent result out of Stanford uh, where the ability for uh, a deep learning system that was trained on radiology scans uh, to be able to diagnose pneumonia better than, um, you know, trained radiologists, for instance. Lots of interesting work going on in dermatology. Um, primarily, you know, these are places where uh, deep learning's effectiveness in image processing um, allows it, you know, that, that's a natural place to, to effectively go. But we are seeing applications across the healthcare space, whether it's, uh, you know, in claims and, 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 and provider, uh, as well as, you know, looking at population health. So, you know, the, you know, number one, healthcare is a huge part of the economy, particularly in the United States. Uh, there's lots of, uh, you know, potential for improvement. And, you know, over time, hopefully there'll be more and more data that can be used for training. And so I think the, the potential there is just, just absolutely, um, uh, absolutely tremendous. Sorry, Michael, I've forgotten the second part of the question. Yeah. Uh, the second part of the question is uh, the ability of user interfaces, user experience to enable non-specialists in the enterprise to make use of the data and the tech these AI technologies. Yeah, I think this is one of those things where just like many other technologies, oftentimes uh, the, the benefits to the end user are um, embedded in the system, but you don't have to understand a convolutional neural network in order to be able to uh, to to speak to a, a voice interface. So I think over time, what we're going to find is you know a little bit of the AI inside. I mean, it'll just be you know, and we see a lot of the technology CEOs saying we're we're, we're going to be an AI company. That doesn't necessarily mean that someone's going to have to be on the command line and uh, you know 
set up the system themselves, but rather that it'll be embedded in the in the in the systems that are are, are um, you know that operate, and we'll just we'll just benefit from better systems. Okay, and in the spirit of plowing forward fast, uh, the at CXL Talk uh, Twitter account asks an interesting question, and she or it, I'll say she rather than than it. Ask the question: uh, Where, what differences have you seen since you published your reports at the end of uh, 2016 and early 2017? So, what's happened this year, and where is it going? Where do you see it going? The, the, the changes and the rate of change as well. So, in some ways, uh, what's happening is predictable because we've seen, uh, you know, these technologies. You know, whether it was from data and analytics, whether it's Internet of Things, cloud, you know, we've talked about mobile before as well. Um, we're starting to see it permeate in terms of awareness, uh, particularly amongst business leaders, at least saying, you know, people asking what's AI. And then there are all kinds of, you know, funny, naive things as well. Right. I mean, I, I joked at another conference. Right. It, there was a time in the data and analytics journey where people said, you know, uh, you know, you hear a, a, a business leader ask their IT person, you know, please buy me a Hadoop, right? And now, you know, please buy me a neural network and how much does it cost, right? I mean, we're starting to see that. That's that's part of the, you know, being along a hype cycle, being part of a journey. I think we have good aware or increasing awareness now. Um, but now I think, you know, understanding the technology, being able to actually deploy it in, in uh, business, you know, we're, we're on the cusp of doing more and more of that. Clearly, the born digital companies with online companies, et cetera, you know, have, have embedded these types of technologies deep within, you know, many of their processes. But we're starting to see, you know, incumbent, let's describe them as incumbent sectors because we have, uh, we have startups in every sector, but incumbent sectors starting to think about how can I use these technologies to improve my performance, to compete better. Um, that's, that's really starting to happen. And it really is a process of understanding, but then practice, right? It's, it's, this isn't something you just read about on the web. It's something you actually have to do because at the end of the day, that last mile challenge, how do I embed that at scale within the process of, of an organization? That's the hard stuff. And finally, we have about three or four minutes left. And so picking up on what you were just describing as incumbents starting to pick these things up, what advice do you have for incumbents who are looking at this and they say, hey, we need to do something? How do, what's, your, what's your advice to these folks? Yeah, number one is, uh, you know, dedicate some time and resources to understanding uh, the technology and its potential. I mean, I should have said they should read our report, but I'm not going to do the commercial. Uh, I think I think it really starting to understand what that potential is. Um, and then I think, you know, this the same sort of test and learn philosophy, which was effective in, in data and analytics broadly. I think that's, you know, something else which is true here, too. Another thing I think which is also true is, um, particularly for the technologies which are working well today around machine learning and deep learning, uh, they're based on having training sets, uh, so data. And so, again, I think being sophisticated about having a, um, a data strategy is really important. Uh, I had the opportunity to speak with Andrew Ng, for instance, who was a, uh, you know, one of the pioneers in, 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 um, in uh, deep learning and, and machine learning overall. Um, and he talks about you know, some of the leading companies in the deployment of AI really spending time on these, you know, multi-year views of what data is important to be collected or have access to. So they'll, they'll be able to compete going forward. And they're playing these multi-year, he describes them as multi-dimensional chess games uh, to have access to the data, which matters. And what are the, what are the largest challenges that you see these business leaders facing right now? 
Well, one of the largest challenges now is uh, particularly on the human talent side. We saw this with data scientists previously. And again, to a certain extent, you know, we talked about many of the AI use cases being extensions of the analytics use cases. Uh, the the analytics challenges with regard to talent uh, now are extended uh, to the challenges around AI as well. Uh, so huge amounts of uh, war for talent in terms of people who understand these technologies deeply. Of course, that's changing too, as more and more people take advantage of uh, online resources and enroll in classes, et cetera. So again, you know, supply and demand is, is constantly evolving, but right now demand is so high and supply is relatively limited. And so I, you know, one of the biggest challenges is just having people on board who can do it. And then another challenge is, is around data, um, because again, it, many times you need these large training sets, in many cases label training sets. And that's a really interesting, uh, you know, job effect too. It's been covered a lot, but, you know, take, for example, self-driving cars, um, you know, they have these cameras in them and they do a lot of their sensors through cameras. Uh, there's a, you know, a growing number of people whose job it is to annotate uh, video feeds from, you know, self-driving car pilots. Uh, to help train these cars themselves, and so again, there's a there's a real challenge around data, and that's something else uh, that uh, you know companies which are on the forefront are really spending some time and energy addressing. And uh, Mitch Lieberman says that he's doing the commercial for you for, from Michael Chewy and McKinsey, saying go read the report because it's really great. And uh, for sure, I will second that. And finally, in the last uh, one minute, changing gears entirely. What do you think about Bitcoin? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's uh, Bitcoin's fun to watch. I mean, I I, ha I have my uh, I have an app that shows me the Bitcoin uh, the Bitcoin uh, to dollar uh, conversion every day. Um, like I think I think I, I'll, I'll let me leave this with it with people just for fun for those who remember their computing history. Uh, we talk about Bitcoin as an application of blockchain. I wonder if blockchain. Uh, is a little bit like risk computing. Uh huh. So in what in what respect that it will? I'll, I'll let you up. Yeah. So it seems to have transformative impact in terms of its potential uh, performance, but perhaps the legacy systems, either technical or uh, business, perhaps could incorporate them. And so it doesn't have as much disruptive impact at the business level so much as incremental. Well, uh, that's very interesting. And I wonder how the blockchain folks would think about that. That's a whole other discussion. And uh, blockchain folks, what do you think about that? We are, we are out of time. Wow. Michael Chewy from McKinsey Global Institute. Thank you so much. This has been a super, super speedy, fast uh, 45 minutes. Thank you so much again for taking time and coming here and sharing your experience and research with us. Thank you, Michael. I've uh, enjoyed being with you again. And I hope you'll come back. I'd be delighted. Everybody, you have been watching episode number 268 of CXO Talk. Our guest has been Michael Chewy, who is one of the leaders of McKinsey Global Institute. Truly, their research is extraordinary, and so I urge you to check it out. Next week, we have a show on uh, Wednesday, episode 269, with... Two interesting folks, um, Annette Norman, who runs, 30, who runs engineering services for Autodesk. She's responsible for 3,500 uh, engineers. Being joined by Tamara McCleary, who is one of the most well-known 
digital transformation experts. And so join us on Wednesday. Next Friday, there's no show because of the Christmas holiday. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. And we will see you again next time. Bye-bye.